0: raw not researched real life stories hi guys welcome to inspirational interviews a super cool life stories platform where we showcase real life stories of people from all over the world brave hearts famous or not going out there doing their thing these interviews are not staged the conversations can go anywhere what's your life story be inspired by these stories to create your beautiful life with me, your host, Jen Rod. So let's talk about who's Jeffrey. Like, where's Jeffrey from? Where was he born? You know, who were you as a child? Like, you 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 were put. You say you were put in when you were 16 years old.
1: I was arrested when 17. I was 16. Yeah, I was 17 when I was put in. Yeah. So Jeffrey is from Peekskill, New York, which is uh, when Westchester County gets the suburbs. It was uh, middle class. It was ethnically diverse. I would say growing up that, I can't. I didn't think of it this way then, but it's clear to me now that it really it was kind of like a double life in a way. There was my life after school and my life in mm. school. So after school, there was a lot of kids that lived in that apartment complex where I grew up at, and um, and uh, I was one of the main kids. And what, meaning that whatever I would suggest would usually be what we would do if we're going to ride bikes, play Monopoly, go play video games, play basketball. Uh, any number of games that we used to uh, that we used to do, but in school, uh, I was I was quiet to myself. I didn't participate in a lot of organized sports. I really wasn't into parties or drinking, and so I was and so I was kind of on the fringes of the society there. And that was all because really extremely early yeah. in my life, I I had skipped a grade, and that you know resulted in there being an age disparity between me and the kids in the high school, and hence the different. Experiences in living life that I just described. Uh, it was me, yeah. my mother, yeah. my brother, who was three and a half years younger than me, and my grandmother. So we all lived together. So my father was uh, never involved in my life in any uh, aspect uh, ever.
0: Yeah. So, and then, um, so you were shy at school, but in your neighborhood, you were outgoing and you were sort of at the center of all the happenings.
1: Correct. I yes. mean,
0: how would you describe yourself now? How would you describe yourself now being, you know, we, we, we haven't even gone into the story yet about, you know, in prison, but that that was you when you were a child, you went into prison, or teenager, should I say, you went into prison and now you're out. Which side of the fence are you on now?
1: I'm still in the same position, just ironically, just in a different way. I'm so... I sit on a lot of different boards, you know, a lot of different advisory boards, and I'm involved in a lot of different movements and groups, and, you know, I, I, I assist a lot of other organizations. So in, in that aspect of it, I'm kind of in the center. In fact, my role in several of the organizations is to reach out to other people and try to get them to join or to even to be a liaison to the exonery community. So in that aspect of it, I am in the center again. <clears throat> but uh, from a social point of view you know the one aspect of my life that i really have struggled tremendously to try to put back together is the social aspect of my life so i guess you might say i'm kind of on mm-hmm. the fringes of it i mean most of the time uh, socially i'm kind of like i'm i'm an observer i'm watching from the outside rather than uh participant you know, but that's not really by choice. I mean, it's kind of frustrating. Actually, in some aspects, it does feel like I'm still mm. locked up, just in a different way. There's no bars in front of me. I have freedom of movement, but just being locked out of yeah. yeah so, I guess you might say I'm kind of in that same position again, just you know, in, in a different way.
0: Yeah. Why do you say you're frustrated about it? Where does that what Where does that come from within you, or why?
1: Because who would have? I feel frustrated about it because I'm a social person. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm very outgoing. I'm. I mean, I think a lot deeply, and I know that's a characteristic of an introvert. But in many ways, I'm, I'm an extrovert. So, uh, so what mm-hmm. I mean by that is, I mean, if I went out to pre-pandemic, if I went to a nightclub or to a lounge, if it, you know, the ambiance might be great and the music is really good and. Everybody appears to be having the time of their life. They're socializing, they're chatting, they're dancing, and I'm kind of like in the. I'm look, I'm there, okay, I'm there, but I'm mm. watching. I'm not really participating. I mean, you know that. Part, yeah. Everybody there is like you know young, they're 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 in their twenties, right? And and I think I look pretty yeah. good for my age. But let's be clear, let's be for real. I'm 47, and I know I look every day of my. 47 years. So nobody would mistake me for a 25, 26, 27 year old. So, you know, I'm probably reminiscent of a father figure. So that would be an example of it. Another example might be I might casually talk to someone that's really just an associate or a colleague of mine in one way or another. And they might mention to me what their plans are for the weekend. Yeah, I'm calling this friend, that friend, or, you know, or in hindsight, yeah, we went here, we went there, we did this, we did that. You know, I'm happy for them. I'm glad that they have plans or that they did something fun. But that wasn't what my reality was. You know, where where were the people for me to call up, for me to get together with socially that share three or four of the same interests that that I do, that live within a reasonable distance so we could be spontaneous. It doesn't doesn't do me any good that one of my childhood best friends that I'm still in touch with, they live in Illinois. That doesn't do me any good unless I'm going to jump on a yeah. plane. But how often are you going to do that just spontaneously? So that's what I thats what I really mean.
0: Mm. Yeah. Well, uh, on your first point, I think you're choosing the wrong clubs. You shouldn't be going to clubs with 20-year-olds. I stopped, but I'm just giving 40-year-olds. it as an
1: example. Yeah, I know. But, I, but there is no place for 40-year-olds that I'm aware of. Okay, you have the younger places, but I stopped. But, I, you know, uh, but then... The other thing is true. I mean, I've went to a place that you know advertises having an older crowd, but it's you know it's, it's like people my grandmother's age. I mean, you know, a seventies, and yeah. sixty, even late sixties. <laughs> I mean, that that's I got well, I got the two extremes going. There doesn't appear to be a middle place, at least not that I'm aware of. You know, but yeah, yeah but those are just so uh, talk mm-hmm. to me
0: then. Um no, yeah, I understand. That's sort of how how you sort of placing yourself at the moment in the in the social spectrum. But let's, I mean, because you spoke about school and how at school you were, you know, the introvert at school, and then you know, in your neighbourhood you were like the centre of, you know, the happenings. Talk to me about then during, like, let's. Let's go into your time in prison because this this was obviously such a huge time of your life and I can imagine everyone listening also wanting to sort of get the full picture and understand things um to also really you know yeah to to feel your journey and to feel your truth and obviously it's, it it's totally it, it it makes total sense, the journey you're on, that you want to protect people from from what you had to go through, which was so wrong. Um, but there must be something deeper almost, you know. And and, and also what I'm curious to know is if this uh, the sense to defend was in you before you went into prison.
1: Well, I did want to be a lawyer prior to going to prison, but it wasn't to do this type of work. It was just because... My mother had a personal injury attorney and he appeared to be well-dressed and well-respected and well-compensated. So I had thoughts of going into uh, going into the legal field to be a lawyer, but just for other work. But but still, you know, you're, 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 mm. you're, there is some there is still something else to what you're saying. I mean, prior to being a teen... I mean, that's really when I switched thoughts as to what career I wanted to have. But prior to that, prior to being a teenager, I did... I did fantasize about being a police officer when I grew up. And so I guess you might say that was part of the instinct to defend. Sure. But maybe part of the other aspect yeah. of the deeper thing that's going on now, um, which is that, you know, I do make sense of everything that happened to me in a kaleidoscopic way. I think this that's why I went, you know, doing this type of to free people and to, Prevent this from happening to other people. I feel like that's my mission in the world. That's my place in the world, and that's how I make sense of what happens to me. So, that's that is part yeah. of the deeper something that's going on, and it is healing. It's meaningful. It's cathartic. You know, it makes my suffering count for something. It allows me to maintain my sanity even yeah. now when I think about the lost uh, 16 years. But let me the other aspect of it is. I'm not angry i'm i'm a I, I want to enjoy my life as much as I can I want to live a meaningful life and I don't think I can do that if I'm angry or bitter. Uh, I think that I've lost so much already that if I was to be angry or bitter, I would in effect be losing the rest of my life and if I was angry or bitter, it would not mm. be like I'd be negatively impacting anybody else. so I take all of that uh, the, uh, so i uh, so I take the energy that I feel and I channel it into the advocacy work that I do. And so that is my release. So I think mm. all of all of those dynamics are in play right now in terms of the work that I do.
0: Yeah, yeah. And tell me something the way you say that. I mean it sounds like it's a it's it's something from a book. You know, that, like those quote unquote, I'm not angry. Otherwise if I was angry, I wouldn't be able to enjoy my life. You know, it sounds like a motivational book that you're quoting there. I mean, how did you um you're a human being, you know, you go through you go through these, well, seven different emotions or stages in, in terms of accepting things or, you know, how did you actually really come to feel that realization of I can't be angry or I've got to let it go. Was that while you were still in prison or was that now since you've left prison?
1: It was since I left prison. So uh, while in prison, I did read a lot of self-help books and books about living a meaningful life. And uh, that. so hmm. I think that the original thought got planted there. I mean, I hearken specifically back to the book uh, by Viktor Frankl, uh, Mankind's Search for Meaning. So I did read that book. Mm-hmm. And then 90 days before I was released, I remember being in, uh, I mean, uh, maybe, th- yeah, about 90 days, 30 to 90 days before I was released, I remember being in prison and I saw on television that another person in, in New Yorker, had been exonerated and in his press conference they asked him was was he angry and he said no he wasn't angry and honestly I thought that that was like the silliest thing ever and I thought you know it seems Mm -hmm. far it seems far-fetched but if I ever managed to be in his position that's certainly not what I'm going to say and it's not what I said when I turned out to be you know I I, in fact I, I turned the question back around on the press when they asked me are you angry I recounted everything that I lost and I said to them well have you lost all of that, would you be angry? So I was angry that first week, Mm. but then I felt like it was destroying me, and so I did some deeper thinking, which is you know I I learned to do to think deeply in prison, and I remembered back what I what I had saw from uh, the the interview I just referenced, and I you know and I guess somewhere in there that it mixed up into my thinking, maybe not on a conscious level, but just subconsciously, just what you know I read in Victor Frankel's book, and so from there I put everything together and i came up with those multiple lines of reasoning and you know as to why i wasn't going to be angry and look i'm a deep thinker and when i look at things from four or five different directions and it still holds up it still points to the same conclusion i generally conclude that i'm onto something that that's that's a correct viewpoint and that was that was my process mm-hmm.
0: Um, but also because you're a deep thinker deep thinkers want a conclusion they they're busy with trying to find a resolve and a conclusion right so yes. if you ultimately if you are one of those deep thinkers um, and I can imagine when you've experienced what you have of going into jail wrongly convicted you know being trapped uh, your freedom taken away from you I can imagine that you learn almost the skill of Coming to a resolve in this deep thinking process, that's going to give you a good feeling rather than a bad feeling.
1: Yeah, that's true. Yes, that's very that's very true. And plus, I'm not just a deep thinker, but I'm somebody of, I, I I like to formulate a a plan, and they'll go out and execute it. But you can't have a plan. You can't go out and execute anything if you don't first come to a conclusion. You have to have a conclusion first, and then you set up a plan. But if you're gonna stay there ambiguously, how can you mm. move forward?
0: Yeah. And that's because you you the conclusion is the belief. It's it's the to come to a conclusion, it's to believe in in whatever it is that thing. And with that belief you carry it forward, right?
1: Right. Exactly right. Yes.
0: Yeah. So tell me about prison. You know, talk to me how it happened, what actually happened.
1: While I was in prison?
0: No, and even how did you end up with probably your hands behind your back in in, uh, in chains or, you know, how did you end up being spotted from the crowd to say you did something wrong, you raped a girl or a boy or whatever it
1: was? Yeah, well, it was, it was a murder and rape and it was, it was, it was a girl and it was uh, a high school classmate actually that had been in a couple of my classes as a freshman, one as a sophomore. I mean, I knew her name, she knew mine, that was really the extent of it. So I got on the police radar because the police interviewed a lot of students from the high school and some of them told the police that they might want to speak to me because I didn't quite fit in. I guess their underlying thinking was people that are loners and quiet and to themselves commit heinous crimes. I think that 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 probably was their underlying thinking. Uh, So that was one way of how I got on the police radar. Another one was that I was a sensitive teenager and this was really my first brush with death. And I had an emotional reaction to it. And the police thought that since I barely knew this classmate, that that was kind of suspicious. So that was a second factor. Mm. Although in looking at the bigger picture with that second factor, I mean, murders were very rare in Peekskill. Many people had an emotional reaction. And hence, there being free mental health counseling set up all throughout the city of Peekskill to anyone who wanted it to help them process what had happened. A third thing is the police got a psychological profile which purported to have the characteristics of the actual perpetrator, and I had the misfortune of matching that. So you might say that was a reinforcing factor. So that was just how I got on their Mm -hmm. radar. Obviously, that's not how they arrested me, but that was how I came to be on their radar. In terms of how they arrested me, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: so I I met with the police about Many times in the course of six weeks, and my interactions with the police always took on the dynamic that they would start out talking to me as a suspect, and then when they would push too hard and I would want to get away from them, they would switch it up, and Jeff is this junior detective helper theme was articulated by them. They would say things like, well, the kids won't talk freely around us. They will around you. Uh, let us know if you hear anything stop in from time to time. They would ask me opinion questions and congratulate me that my opinions were correct. So that kind of tapped into what I mentioned earlier about wanting to be a police officer when I grew up. So that, along with my age, 16, was how they pulled the wool over my eyes on that. Eventually, they got me to agree to take mm-hmm. a, and they also did the good cop, bad cop routine and one, where one of the officers was to be my friend. And so at some point, I began to look up to him as a father figure. So there's where my father, never being involved in my life in any aspect, came into play. Eventually, they got me to agree mm. to take a lie detector test. They told me, we have some new information and we want to share that with you, but we ha- you have to take in past the polygraph first. And so I agreed to take the test. And so the next day, rather than report to school, I went to the police station for the test. I expected the test to be at the police station because I had to the rumor mill that other people had been polygraphed there. Because it was a school day, my mother and grandmother did not call around looking for me. They thought I was in school. So they drove me by car 40 minutes away from Peekskill in Westchester County. They drove me across county lines to the town of Brewster, which is in Putnam County. So that meant that I was not able to leave on my own anymore. I was dependent upon the police. There were, there were um, three officers there from Peekskill. But then there was the polygraphist, uh, Daniel Stevens, who was a Putnam County Sheriff's investigator. And he was dressed like a civilian. He never identified himself as an officer. I never learned that he was law enforcement. He never read me my rights. I didn't have an attorney present. They didn't give me anything to eat the time I was there. They gave me this brochure to read, but it had big words in it that I didn't understand. But then I figured, well... I'm here to help the police. So what does it matter? Let's just get on with it. From there, they put me in a small room, and he gave me countless cups of coffee in order to get me nervous. And then he attached me to the polygraph machine, and then he launched into his third-degree tactics. So he raised his voice at me. He kept he, uh, invaded my personal space. He kept asking me the same questions over and over again. And each hour that passed, my fear increased in proportion to the time. And he kept that up for six and a half to seven hours. Towards the end, he said, what do you mean you didn't do it? You just told me through the test results that you did. We just want you to verbally confirm it. And so that really shot my fear through the roof. And at that point, the officer who had been pretending to be my friend, he told me that the other officers were going to harm me, that he had been holding them off, but could not do so any longer, that I had to help myself. Then he told me, "Just tell them what they want to hear. They can stop afterwards. I mean, they'll stop, and and you can go home afterwards. That you're not going to be arrested." So, being young, naive, frightened, sixteen years old, not thinking about the long term, I was only concerned my safety in the moment. Uh, I wasn't fear of my life. The fact that nobody knew where I that I didn't know where I was, that nobody else knew where I was either, loomed very large in my mind. I was overwhelmed emotionally and psychologically. So. I took the out which he offered and I made up a story based upon the information which he he had given me in the course of the interrogation. By the time everything was said and done, I had collapsed on the floor into a fetal position. I was crying uncontrollably. Obviously, I was arrested. So that was how I came to be arrested. The other aspect Mm. of that after that was how I came to lose the trial.
0: Um, so before before you go into now that the the next section in in the trial, you you mentioned three things before um you know but for for them to sort of pinpoint you as an option, and one of them was that you reacted to to the fear of you know the death. You had an emotional reaction. What did you mean by that?
1: Well, what I meant is I I meant that uh, it was really a very sad thing. It wasn't that I was afraid of the dead, like in the abstract. What I meant is that I thought that it was very sad that somebody 15 years old that used to go to classes, you know, in the same high school that I did that even went into, went to a few of the classes that I, that I was in. Well, you know, lost their life. I thought that death was just something that happened at the end of somebody's life. So that's mm. well, that's what I mean. But in addition to that, I did uh, I did get to go to the victims uh house like after the internment there was a general announcement that was made at the uh, grave site that anyone that wanted to go back to the family's house afterwards and spend a little time with the family had an invitation to go and so I availed myself of that and so when I went there that there was you know coffee and pastries there and so I went and While I was there, you know, I saw that really they had left her room in the same exact way that it was when she was last there. And so that kind of struck me emotionally Mm -hmm. as well.
0: Yeah. And what was your actual reaction?
1: It was just, it was, uh, it was sad. Uh, I cried, but, you know, again, other people did as well. That was really my reaction. It was, you know, I, uh, I was mm-hmm. emotional. That's all. I cried. Other people cried.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, that's not something to to pinpoint you out. Do you know what I mean? That's no, I do. To, I do.
1: I think that their whole – I agree. I think the whole police rationale was completely cockeyed and made no sense at all. It was kind of like Keystone Cops. But, you know, that's that's what happened. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, I mean, also you spoke about the whole shy factor, and I've heard this before. I mean, also even with, with Jason Baldwin, you know, these guys were sort of more, you know, the typical, the outcasts of the class, you know, wearing black and, you know, not your normal sort of football players or basketball players or whatever you would call them, you know what I mean? They were more the outcast-looking uh, students. And you talk about, you know, being shy and... um more reserved and more introverted. But I mean, it sounds, you know, that that's how many years ago is it now that that it happened?
1: Well, that was, well, that was 1990. So we're talking about, let's see, from then to 2021, we're talking about 31 years.
0: Yeah. And I mean, that's, it's, yeah, I mean, it just it, I, I guess in those days, I, you know, cause uh, it feels like it was more recent, but I guess in those days they were a bit more, um, narrow-minded with these sorts of personality profiling.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't, I would agree with you, but you know, I, I think I, you know, I, I don't, I haven't heard that they don't use profiles anymore and. You know, video in many states in the U.S., uh, interrogations still are not videotaped. There are some states that do mandate videotaping, such as New York, which I helped to uh, spearhead that change. They they have exceptions for videotaping uh, interrogations. So, you know, and public defenders are still overwhelmed and overworked, and that still happens.
0: You spoke about three factors, right? Which sort of gave them the opportunity to point you out from other people. One of them being that um, you were sort of the outcast; you were shy, introverted. Uh, the other one was that your reaction to the situation was quite emotional. Mm. Um, and you said something else. There were three things. What were the? What was the other thing that you said? Yeah, they got a,
1: The police got a psychological profile from the NYPD, at uh, which claimed to have the psychological characteristics of the actual perpetrator. And I had the misfortune of uh, matching that.
0: Okay. And w- so, so huh? cause I'm not a specialist in this topic, but like everyone listening right now, neither are they. So, you know, what this approach a psychological profile. What, so I understand what that psychological profile, which means psycholo- like you fitted this psychological profile, but Did the family come to you and say this was the profile or how how did that information become uh, a psychological profile, you know? Did somebody see somebody or hear something or?
1: No, the Peekskill Police, not being used to investigating murder cases, consulted with the, you know, the New York Police Department, which deals with murder cases all the time. And they had somebody on staff there that, Mm -hmm. you know, that, studied the crime and they thought well this must have been done by somebody who was kind of a loner was by himself um, uh, probably somebody that knew the victim and likely even somebody in the high school yeah but it, it's it's not a science you all it's all a of junk who
0: don't know the story? Hmm?
1: I'm saying it's not a science Sorry? it's a ju- it's a junk science it's not it's not reliable but it's you know there's So-called experts that think that they could look at a crime and then have an idea of, you know, what type of person is likely to have committed it. And so they list those things and then Mm -hmm. give that to the law enforcement entity that's actually investigating the crime. So when they come across people, they can compare it to that profile. And that might be a reason why they hone in on one person or another. That's how that works, but it's not. Yeah. It's not a science. Yeah. I mean, it was very inaccurate in my case, and in many others as well.
0: Yeah. So, and can you just tell us what? Because your story is about this. So, just tell us what happened. What was what happened? What was this woman's name? What happened actually?
1: Yeah, her name was Angela Correa, and she was. So she she uh, she was a, a one of her classes was the photography class. And she was assigned to take pictures of foliage as the rest of the class was. And the teacher assigned male students to female students. And, you know, the male student assigned to her didn't go to that, did not go to that assignment. So from school, she went to her house. She walked back to her house with her older sister. Her older sister went to the restroom. And when she came back out, Angela had left. She never had went out before on her own, but she decided this time, venture out on her own with her camera and she went to the park to take pictures you know and uh, there's a wooded area that connect that's in between the this apartment condominiums and another school and that and, and that was like a very wooded mm-hmm. area and so that's where she went in order to take uh pictures and while there yeah. she came across the she came across the actual perpetrator who was high. He was a drug addict. He was high. He was in the area, and he attacked, uh, raped, and murdered her.
0: Wow. So now this this perpetrator has now been found. Is he was he still alive? Being such a druggy and uh, you know off off the rails.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, he killed. He was found. I mean, he, when he was located, he was in prison also because he killed. Left free while I was doing time for his crime, he killed a second uh, victim three and a half years later. He was found because we took the DNA evidence that already didn't match me and we it was entered into the DNA data bank and it matched the actual, and it matched him. and his DNA was in the data bank because he had to give a sample because he was he had you know killed somebody and he was in, in the prison system. Yes. and confronted with that evidence, he admitted mm-hmm. that he was the person who committed the crime.
0: And tell me do you think they went through that same uh rigorous intim- intimidation uh interrogation with him as they did with you as well?
1: I don't think well they they questioned him yeah I mean he confessed to it but I don't think that they coerced a the false confession out of him I mean the DNA matched him. So really it it almost didn't matter. I mean the exactly. the gig the gig was up.
0: Yeah. So tell me, how, how does that work now? Did they, do they keep the person's body in a, in a cold room in a, you know, in a cold uh, store facility? Uh, how do they match or, or is it that they do a sample check of, I, I guess, within the woman's uterus and then to see they, they keep whatever's that in a sample and then they can see there's DNA in that they don't keep the body. How does this all work?
1: Yeah, they well, like you. Said, they, no, they don't keep the body. They they just they take samples. They take samples, and if seminal fluid yeah. is detected, then they you know they collect they collect all the evidence and then they preserve it.
0: Yeah. Okay. And so this can only be used. How? Cause, so if, just to understand this whole now DNA testing because this is revolutionized, right? Yes,
1: it is the world of yeah.
0: Yeah. So, how, I mean, for example, this woman was raped. So, there, there was the ability to, to, test, you know, to, there was semen. So, they could test that, they could store that. But, what about people that are murdered or how, how does that well, work? Well, mur- yeah. Way?
1: So, in terms of materials that could be tested, that would be semen, saliva, hair, blood, sweat. If there's a clothing item, then often the you know, the perpetrator has sweated into it. So, you're right that most cases don't have – I mean, the most common cases mm-hmm. that have DNA in it would be rape cases and murder cases. I mean, it's much less likely in an in mm. arson case or a robbery or a burglary. So most of the DNA-based exonerations are murder cases and rape cases, you know, for the most part. Mm.
0: Mm. So now I can – I mean, is it that nowadays because there's this – ability to do DNA testing, which there wasn't back when you went into jail, um, is it that and I understand in America things work so different from state to state um, or, or or has that changed as well, but you can answer that just now, but it's more, um, is, is it now that they have to have a DNA match before they can put someone in jail?
1: Alright, so Firstly, they were able to, they were doing DNA at the time that my my trial happened. Okay. The DNA did not match me before the trial. What changed was that the DNA database was created. And so what the difference between the two things is that that meant that before they could only compare DNA that's found in a crime scene. They could only compare that to a particular suspect and the database was created. You could take the DNA that was at the crime scene, you could compare it to all the samples that were in the database. So basically, we were able to go from saying Mm -hmm. it wasn't me to who it actually did, who it actually did match. Uh, So that being said, though, uh, in terms Mm -hmm. of your question of whether they have to match the DNA before they make an arrest, no, they don't, they do not. And DNA and DNA is only in five to 12% of all serious felony cases. So in most cases, they're is no mm-hmm. DNA to test, but they don't have to even if there is test DNA to test they're not mandated to do the testing prior to making arrest they just have to find enough evidence that to have what's called uh to have a it's called probable cause right but it it just means there's a reason to believe that somebody committed a crime
0: wow. So you were going to say earlier that, so that, that was the initial screening, right? Which got you on the floor, like in a fetus position, completely broken. And then you said that then, then there was the trial. So tell us about that section.
1: Yeah. So the DNA before the trial, the DNA didn't match me, as I mentioned to you. And they got them, the prosecutor got the medical examiner to commit fraud. And basically he claimed that the victim was promiscuous. And that was what allowed the prosecutor to argue, well, that was how the seminal fluid didn't match me, but that I was still guilty, that she must have, that she was sleeping with everybody and that she must have slept with someone else prior to me my raping and murdering her. And then he mentioned it, he mentioned a specific person that he said must have been the one who slept with her, but he never had a DNA sample taken from that person. He never called him as a witness. He just made an unsupported argument to the jury. He got away with that because the victim's family was not coming to court. They had no idea of what was being said about her in court. And then my attorney, who was a public defender, basically didn't defend me. No, he never explained to the jury what the DNA not matching me meant. He never used that to challenge the confession. He never tried to discredit this medical examiner. He wouldn't allow, he would not allow me to testify because when they interrogated me, it was not videotaped. There was no audio tape. There's no signed confession. It's just the cops word for it. And they left the threat and false promise out of their testimony. Then he wouldn't allow me to testify at the trial. And so when you added all these things up, you know, I was wrongfully convicted and I was given a 15 to life sentence.
0: Wow. What is it in their interest to, like you said, he was he was manipulating it. He was lying. Why would he do that?
1: Be, well, be, because it's illegal what he did. It, the police are not allowed so to threaten why would somebody. He do? Because he wanted to because he they wanted they they wanted the perception that the the case was solved, there was a lot of public pressure on mm-hmm. the police to make an arrest, and so they wanted somebody anybody mm-hmm. and I happened to be who they picked for the reasons that I mentioned to you mm.
0: so there's a pressure on these cops to persecutors cops these. There's a pressure on the whole system to to conclude a trial a, a murder trial rape trial there's a pressure on them to do it so then they're also pressured to 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 find a victim
1: Well they're, they're yeah they're they're pressured to find a suspect and to arrest them yes
0: mm. I mean not a victim sorry a suspect yeah So what yeah that, I mean yeah you are was your mom there and your grand there when this happened in the trial
1: well my grandmother was not my mother was yeah my grandmother was not coming to court my mother was going to court and, and my aunt was as well yes
0: yeah so i mean what happened on that day That must have been like is would you describe that as like one of the worst days of your life or is that not the day
1: of course yeah definitely i mean it's you know it' was found guilty of a crime that I was, you know, innocent of. And, you know, it's, it's hard to imagine something more difficult than that. I mean, what? I mean, being told that you're terminally ill or being in some horrific accident and now you're in a wheelchair or you've got cancer or AIDS. But, I mean, other than something like that, I can't think of anything that would be worse than that. Mm. but, uh, you know, nobody nobody saw that coming. I mean, I, I certainly expected to be found not guilty. I mean, I still believed in the court system, and I thought only guilty people were found guilty, but I learned that that was not the case.
0: Have you seen any of those guys again, any of those men or women who, I don't know who they were, those
1: yeah, yeah, prosecutors? I, 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 that, I, yeah, have you I, seen I've, them again? I've, saw, I've seen all of them. Because you know, when I was later when I was later proven innocent through the further DNA testing, I did I did file a lawsuit and when it was their turn to come and testify in the deposition, I was I was in I, I attended. I wanted to be there when that happened. And so I sat right across from them. I was you know, listening to them what as my lawyers like? were questioning them. Yeah. Mm.
0: What was that like?
1: It was very difficult emotionally. I mean, you know, you're not supposed to speak to people. But when the detective came in the room that was pretending to be my friend, it had, the one who had played the role of pretending to be my friend, you know, like he mm-hmm. nodded to me like we were like friends from way back when. And, and I kind of broke the decorum, you know, and I just remember screaming out, yo, you cost me 16 years of my life. And his answer was, uh, I didn't cost you anything.
0: Wow. So what's happened to those guys now?
1: Uh, the short answer is nothing. Um, you know, they never got in trouble. They never got, you know, they never got in trouble for that. And they never, you know, they never faced any criminal charges. And while I won the lawsuit, I mean, they didn't personally pay any money. I mean, just the municipality paid, paid money that uh, they, they worked for. So, you know, everybody, you know, nobody got in trouble for anything. That's mm-hmm. one of the things, that's one of the.
0: And did they, yeah.
1: I was going to say that was one of the, that's, you know, that's still one of the things that, you know, frustrates me in a way they really were never, you know, they never were held accountable for that.
0: Hmm and i mean would you want them to be accountable is i mean you mentioned money now which which raises other ideas in my head of of you know things that i'm interested to ask you but when you say accountable what would sort of give you peace in in the situation is that is it that you get paid out or is that they would come to you personally and say listen you know i, I screwed up or i had bad judgment or i'm sorry I was in a position X, Y, and Z to do this. Or, you know, what is it that you want from those guys?
1: I would like them to be arrested and have to do heavy time in prison for what they did. I mean, I did 16 years from what they did. Why why should they have to do anything less? So I would want that. And I would want them to apologize to me personally as well. You know, don't make any excuses. You did what you did. Mm -hmm. We both know what you did. You know, DNA proved what you did. I'd like I'd like an apology as well. I think you sh- they should do, you know, some significant prison time and also uh, apologize to me. But I know that that's never going to mm. happen.
0: So earlier we we started the conversation talking about anger, right? And that you you had you felt you know that you've got you've you've got you've come to a peace. You read Viktor Frankl's book, A Man's Search for Meaning. Um, When you say this, it sounds to me like there's still, and I mean,
1: yeah, I, I can I will, imagine. I, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I see what you get in that. Yeah, <laughs> I, I agree. Maybe there's still, when I, maybe there's still something there a little bit on that aspect of it. Sure, I, I agree. You're right.
0: Yeah. yeah. So talk to me about prison. What was prison like? I mean, talk to me about. Like first actually, what I want to know is on that day when 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 the hearing was called, I mean, what actually just paint the picture for me, because I you know you see this in movies all the time, you know where you know there's a whole scene and then someone gets convicted, the you know the the hammer goes down, and you know the guy gets taken to the back. Like, what was it like for you? Like, tell me, show me in my head.
1: When I was found guilty or when I was released?
0: Yeah. On the day, you were found guilty.
1: Yeah, the, so um, so the jury sent a note out to the judge saying that they reached a verdict. And, uh, you know, the court mentioned that openly, that, you know, the jury's reached a verdict and we had to wait for a half hour for everybody to get there. Well, you know, I mean, I was there, my attorney was there, but the you know, prosecutor had was called and had to come to the courtroom. And uh, I, I think that they made an alert to the, to the media as well. Cause the media had been covering the case and maybe half hour later, the jury came, you know, came back in and, you know, in the room, they were in the room where they were deliberating. And, and I remember I was sitting at the table and I was making eye contact with them and I was looking at them as they were walking in, you know, cause I mean, there was a, there was a saying I had heard at the jail at the County jail, um, but back before I had gotten bailed out, and that's if the jury, if the jury looks, makes eye contact with you and they smile at you, that that means that they've found you not guilty. But if they look away from you or they look mm-hmm. serious, then, you know, then they have found you guilty. So I'm looking at them and they're not making eye contact with me. They're looking kind of serious. And I remembered that. But then I thought, well, I guess maybe they don't know what they're talking about because, you know, maybe that saying is not true. Because I'm still thinking I'm going to be found mm-hmm. not guilty. Uh, so the jury walks in. They sit down, and the court clerk stands up, and you know, and and he uh, asked the jury if they've reached a uh, reached a verdict, and uh, and uh, the jury four persons stood up and said yes, and they started reading off charges one at a time, and so the first three charges I was found not guilty of, and then they then they read read off another charge, and uh, I, I heard the word guilty, and then they read another charge, and they said the word guilty, and they. Read another charge, and they said the word guilty. And I remember that. <clears throat> I remember I really couldn't believe my hearing, and I remember questioning my own hearing. Well, wait, did I, did I, did I just hear that right? Did I, did I miss the word not in there? Mm. So, yeah. So, uh, so I remember hearing that, and then, uh, and my then my attorney uh, asked the court to. They call it. They, they, they asked each individual juror, juror if that was their, if that was their verdict, you know, and so all 12 people had to confirm that that was their decision. And then the, then the jury was uh, excused and, you know, I was, uh, the, the court officers came and they took me back into the holding cell area and I was, uh, in, I was in custody.
0: And you, were you too shocked to even say anything?
1: Yes. Yeah, I was. I was shocked. I, I was in shock. I didn't know what to think. I didn't know what was going to happen to me anymore at
0: that mm. point. Hmm. Sure. And you were 17 by this stage, right?
1: I was, yes.
0: No. Wow, it's a crazy. Uh, it's it's such a crazy position to be in. You know, I often wonder. Like we would talk. You know, I was talking about the worst day of your life, or um, well, you were referring to someone has an accident and then you know get told they're paralyzed and they can't walk again. And a um, question uh the, the the situation when um, in terms of freedom right so now you get told basically you your freedom's gone you, you you be you're gonna be in the control of somebody else your 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 freedom's taken away from you and you have no more decision over your own life and you're only seventeen years old and then you go you get locked up in this jail and then like what, i mean how did that play out for you in your head psychologically how did you not go into psychosis or lose the plot
1: in a way i did i mean i did i mean i i was became kind of i became really really depressed and i felt suicidal so in a way i in a way i did i mean i don't, I don't think it was psychosis but it was those other aspects of it it's kind of in the same spirit of what you're asking
0: Hmm. So how did you cope?
1: Well, ultimately, I mean, I I just started believing, you know, and then I started looking forward to the next legal proceeding where I was where I hoped that everything was going to be straightened out. So after I was found guilty, the next thing I was looking at was the was the sentencing hearing because I wanted the, you know, I wanted the my attorney to try to get the guilty verdict thrown out at the sentencing hearing prior to the sentence being given. And then when, you know, when that didn't work out, uh, I was sent to prison shortly after that. And the next thing was, I, you know, I was looking, I was looking forward to the next appeal, you know, which I was sure I was going to win mm. because I was innocent. And so I just felt like I just, I just have to hold on, you know, for this next year or two until the appeal is decided. Mm. You know, I mean, it wound up, I mean, it wound up taking—I mean, close to four years before I got a decision. And then, when I lost, I looked forward to the next proceeding, and I just kept repeating that same process. I mean, and that—that that took me through eleven. Mm-hmm. That took me through eleven years doing that. And then, uh, once the appeals were all over, the only way back into court is if you find some new evidence. And so, because I didn't have money to hire an attorney or an investigator to try to. Investigate and find new evidence. I started writing letters to anyone and anyone that could help me, either directly or indirectly. So, whether you were in the legal field or not, if there was some action within their ability, if there was some action I could envision uh, somebody taking that could set in motion a chain of events that ultimately culminated into my obtaining the uh, legal investigative help that I needed, I wrote the letter. And so, That became the next thing that I was holding on to. So I did that for four years. And then uh, by that point, I had close to 15 years in. And so I began looking at the parole board as the next, that was the next thing I held on to. And, uh, you know, but then I went to the parole board and because I maintained my innocence rather than expressing remorse or taking responsibility, I was turned down for parole and they told me to appear in front of them two years later. And at that point, I thought it was over. You know, because I knew a lot of people that would go to the parole board and be turned down and would go back to the parole board in two years and be turned down now and have that same pattern, help uh, you know, recurring over and over again. Um, but I wound up getting legal representation. One of the letters that I wrote ended up in the hands of Claudia Whitman, who was an investigator, and she believed in my innocence based on the DNA. And uh, she ultimately connected me to the Innocence Project. She got them to take my case, and you know, then I got mm. then, uh, when they getting their getting their representation was the first key. And then after that, the district attorney, who had uh, Janine Piro, who had blocked me from getting further DNA testing and who had fought all seven of my appeals, she left office, and her successor allowed me to have the testing, and then. And then the third thing is we got lucky that the actual perpetrator's DNA was in the data bank so that, you know, it, it matched him. And so that's how the conviction was overturned mm-hmm. September 22nd, 2006. And the charges were dismissed November 2nd, 2006, um, on actual innocence grounds. And at some point shortly after that, the actual perpetrator was uh, arrested and, you know, and uh, ultimately, he pled guilty and was sentenced for the crime.
0: Yeah. So what? Because um, what I'm hearing, you know, what got you through it was that you know you just held on to that image of hope every time. You know, you said, okay, it was first, okay, the letters, and then, well, your appeal, and then that didn't happen. But it was then the letter after the letter, and you know, you kept you kept holding on, and and coming up with also these ideas, right, to to hold on to, that this could be an option, that could be an option. I mean, that is a human survival skill. I think that that's what gets people through life, right, is that constant ability to, you know, to follow the breadcrumbs of hope. And you were able to do that, Um whether it's survival in prison or just survival in life, you know, um, it's a it's a life skill. What do you think gave you the ability to do that? Where maybe other prisoners wrongly convicted don't have that ability to follow the breadcrumbs.
1: When you put it like that, I mean, I'm not. I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, I guess just by fighting spirit. I mean, just you know, just not giving up. Uh, not being willing to, like you said, let go of that, you know, just I wasn't willing to let go those breadcrumbs of hope, because if you let go of that, what else do you have? But I want to point out that that while what we've just said is the bottom line, I I just would like to add a little bit more color to that. I mean, so another aspect or mixed in with that, Mm. definitely belief in God was one thing. Another thing was that I used to go to the law library and learn the law, and that helped me that helped. That felt like empowering. I used to read articles about mm-hmm. other people who were in the same position I was that had been exonerated, and that gave me inspiration to keep going. Another aspect of it was mm-hmm. there was a there was another uh, prisoner there named Frank Sterling who was also wrongfully imprisoned. Then Frank and I used to get together once every six weeks, and we would try to keep each other going morale wise, and we would brainstorm about what the next move was to make. Uh, Frank was ultimately exonerated by DNA uh, a couple of years after me doing 18 years. So we actually were two wrongfully convicted prisoners that were aware that we were we both believed in each other's innocence. And normally that doesn't happen in prison. I mean, if there's people that are wrongfully imprisoned, they're not aware of each other's innocence. It's just like a couple of ships passing in the night. But that was another aspect of it. Another thing was I found other ways to hold on. So I I used to cut out pictures of nature scenes and I would hang them up in the cell and I would just travel there mentally. And I used to listen to sports talk radio, but it was not listening to sports talk radio. This was like a lifeline to the outside. And I, and I created mm-hmm. this elaborate delusion for myself when I would play uh, basketball or chess or ping pong. And I would pretend like I was a professional player, and so was everybody else. But it was not like kids fooling around on a playground. This was uh, a uh, the internal defense mechanism. I needed to get out of the prison mentally, so I created that space for myself within 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 my uh, within my head. And similarly, in 1998, uh, the prison where I spent most of the time at Elmira Correctional Facility, they allowed us to purchase televisions. So while my TV stayed off for the most part, because I was doing legal work, I was writing letters, uh, I was reading from, I was reading like three or four nonfiction books a week. So mostly my TV stayed off. But but when it was turned on, there were certain weekly programs that I used to watch. And I, again, engaged in a delusion. So when I would watch those programs, I would pretend like if I was visiting with uh, friends. So that was, and then, you know, you use euphemisms. It's not the prison warden, it's the superintendent. It's not the uh, guards, it's the correction officers. And it's not that I'm going to this prison assignment in the morning and this prison assignment in the afternoon. I'm I'm going to school or I'm going to work. So usage of euphemisms Mm -hmm. as well. So I would say that all of those things were factors uh, along with the idea that I knew I knew that nobody was coming to my rescue, that no one that I knew already was coming to my rescue so that I was going to have to go out and recruit somebody that could be that champion for me, that could build that bridge between me and the necessary legal professionals that I needed. And I had read about that in other wrongful conviction cases that ended with Mm. somebody being exonerated. I had read that that had happened. So mm. uh, so I didn't have the luxury of losing my mind. That was yet another act of self-preservation. If I had lost my mind or allowed myself to go into a depression, then I was not going to be equipped to simultaneously reach out to people and try to get their help. And uh, But not only did the letter writing campaign ultimately culminate into my getting that champion, which did lead to my getting the legal help, but another facet of that was in the last couple of years, uh, one of the ads that I placed looking for a pen pal was responded to by somebody who had been a crime victim. His name is um, Scott Kiley. And you know, in my ad, looking for a pen pal, I referenced that I was innocent and that the DNA didn't match me. And he answered my ad. And so we corresponded for the last two years. So I feel like he kind of showed up in the nick of time because I was really... At the end of my rope. I mean, I was openly asking this stranger mm. that I didn't know from anywhere, uh, "Should I just give up? Should I quit? Should I just go ahead and commit suicide and be done? I'm never going to get out of here." You know, and uh, he helped keep me going. No, I mean he yeah. wrote different. And tell sim- me just yeah.
0: from a from a practical point of view, how do you how do you get a pen pal in prison? How does that work?
1: Well, there's a number of options. I mean what worked for me was I placed the ad in a newspaper. You just place an ad in a newspaper and you take a chance. But I mean there's other ways of doing it.
0: And you can do that from prison?
1: Yeah, you can you can correspond with a newspaper or any person that's doing business and you can pay for the ad. I mean there's a way to send money out from your prison account. And so I did that. But Okay. generally, there's other ways to do that. I mean, you can there's Internet sites that are specifically for, you know, prisoners that are looking for a pen pal. You can a prisoner could uh, pay the money that pay the fee that it costs or somebody on the outside or friend or family member could could do that. People do that. And sometimes prisoners uh, meet someone on the outside that's connected some kind of way to another prisoner. Maybe it's a family member or maybe it's. Someone that they know at a distance. I mean, those are all different. You're only really limited mm. by your imagination.
0: So it's interesting what you said earlier. You said I didn't have the luxury of losing my mind.
1: Right. Yeah. So many times I, I, I find didn't. That many, fascinating. So many, many times I wanted to. I didn't feel like going through the prison routine. I don't feel like getting up 6 30 in the morning so the guards can come around and make sure I'm standing there, that I'm awake, that I'm still breathing, that I have not escape. I don't feel like doing that. I don't feel like li- leaving my cell and going to the cafeteria and, you know, doing all the protocols there and getting this, you know, they give you the spoon and you have to, when you leave, you have to give them back the spoon and someone's counting it. You have to go through the metal detector and, you know, go to whatever your assignment is. I didn't feel like going through all, 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 all of that. I, sometimes I felt like just laying there in the bed and just... Just refuse to participate in any of it. Just just lay there silent and don't answer anybody. Don't do anything. Just sit there and just in one big uh, protest. You know, I, I, felt, I felt that mm. thought. And other times I didn't feel like I had the energy to keep going through everything. I mean, it's, it's not an easy thing to be in prison. I mean, it's not simply the loss of your freedom. You know, it's that I had to keep fighting off feelings of hopelessness, helplessness, thoughts of giving up, suicidal ideation. Uh, Every time I lost an appeal, that was like I was wrongfully convicted yet again, because you can't have an appeal and work at it and pray without hoping. But then when your hopes are dashed, that's really a devastating blow as well. Uh, The prison itself is, uh, it's uh, very violent there. There was, you know, stabbings and cuttings all the time. There was other violence that didn't involve weapons. The guards were verbally abusive. So you have to navigate that. You have to Like I had everybody mapped out. Like when certain guards were working and they were in the area where I was at, my only goal for that day was simply to avoid uh, detection. And, you know, just like you have to, I used to study the prisoners as well. And people that I thought that had this metaphorical Mm. cloud above their head that, you know, they were going to self-destruct. They're like this big thunderhead. And the only goal is to make sure they they don't manage to take me down with them. When they eventually get them you know, self-destruct, I don't want to be caught in that. And so you have to navigate that and you have mm-hmm. to learn all these prison survival tactics and things that you can do to minimize the chances that you're going to be involved into a, a violent incident. And then you try and not to run afoul mm-hmm. of any of these prison rules, because if you don't, then, you know, it's going to be that much more that I have to answer when I go to, when I go to the parole board where they're considering whether they're going to release me or not, it's not, just dealing with the charges but then well what happened these times you got in trouble while you were there so it was this big non-stop gauntlet you know uh, for 16 mm. years so that's what I that's part of what I mean I got tired of dealing with all of that at times but you know you don't have a choice you have to keep going because remember if I stop participating yeah. then I'm going to be in trouble that means I'm not going to be allowed to go to the to the law library. That means I'm not going to be able to use the phone. That means I'm not going to be earning the pennies that they're giving us, which means I'm not going to have any money to purchase stamps, which means I'm not going to then be able to send letters out. It means that even the limited information you have in the prison to get addresses and other people, I'm not going to be able to move around to go and get that. So everything falls apart if I stop participating in the whole prison process. So that was all part of it. And yeah. plus, I mean, how do you write a letter for look, looking for help and you're suicidal or you, you know, you, you're just, just completely out of it. How do you do, how, how can you do both at the same time? I, 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 submit you can't. And so I, that's what all part of what I mean when I said that
0: yeah. I didn't have the
1: luxury of losing of my mind. It was I quite find... a bit went into that.
0: No, no. I find, I, I, I find your, you know, your life experience, fascinating also in in sort of correlation to people who aren't in, in prison, right? Um, and I, I guess I think this, you know, being the analyst that I am as well, and always looking for the inspiring essence in conversations, no matter what anybody has gone through, you know, and I find what I find fascinating about your story is how it's so also linked to people who aren't in prison but are in their own prison within themselves, you know, and how they can, you know, really like they can learn so much from from what you've just been saying, you know, in terms of you you talk about you didn't have the luxury, and and this is the thing, you know, the depression and um and and I don't want to use that loosely. I don't want to get into trouble here where I say you know label people with depression. But I think that when one allows themselves to get into depression and to get into, and I'm talking about from the beginning of it, um, I think there's a lot of space where people do have that decision, you know, to go down that dep- that road or not. And the thing is, because you you had it mapped out, like you knew, you know if i don't behave myself or if i don't make money i'm not going to get stamps i'm not going to be able to you know to to pay to to send letters and you knew what your survival meant and in a way that's such you know it's it's uh, uh, this is going to sound weird but it's it's a it's a better advantage point from people who are not in jail but are going through this horrible spiral of depression in life because they're not seeing their life as this sort of map of having to survive. They're not seeing all all the ways that they're going to need to be alert so that they can send letters, so that they can access the library. So, you know, it's interesting how seeing the keys, the, 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 the different keys to the different locks the different doors, knowing those gave you so much strength to figure your life out, to get out of prison, to own your life, you know, that people otherwise, you know, in, in who aren't in jail but who are trapped in their own minds don't have that um, advantage point in a way. I don't know. Do you understand what I'm saying?
1: I understand exactly what you're saying, and I think that the themes that can be I've kind of summed up everything like into a formula, you know, in my own mind that I can articulate. And all that is drawn from my life journey that we've talked about now and in navigating that difficult first five years of freedom when I had to readjust and, you know, technology is different, I have psychological after effects, social stigma, all of that. And then even in trying to get into law school and trying to pass classes there and, you know, in the hell that is preparing for the bar exam. And so from all of those checkpoints in my journey, let's say, my formula I found is this, is that set a goal, which, you know, for me, you know, was overcoming some kind of adversity, I mean, mine was specifically that, but we're going to keep it generic, like you said. So set a goal. Uh, Have a realistic plan. You should be able to look at it three or four different ways and say to yourself, yeah, I could see how that might work. Remember, be flexible. Remember that the goal is the goal. The plan is not the goal. So if an unexpected door opens for you that brings you closer to that door, then just because you didn't plan for that doesn't mean you shouldn't walk through it and and keep advancing forward. No excuses. No excuses. So there might be a reason why something is hard for you to do, but no excuses as to why it can't be done. Work really, really mm-hmm. hard. You know, so I think that people that work hard are people that are likely to overcome their adversity. It's not just gonna just drop into their lap just because. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. never give up. And whenever I reached a juncture where I couldn't go on anymore in any one of those phases of my life, I said to myself, well, maybe this is the key moment. Maybe I was on the verge of a breakthrough, but because I quit, it's not going to happen. So even though I can't go on anymore, I'm going to do it anyway, just to see what happens on the other side. And then once you make it through, you have to reach back. And help somebody else that's in the same position that you're in. Do some work on the preventative side, and if you can do that, that's how you not only have overcome your adversity, but you can rebuild your life into something that's meaningful, that's difference-making. It'll be healing. It'll be cathartic. It'll turn your. It'll turn. You make your suffering count uh, for something. And it'll help improve the world some. And I I know that that universal message can apply to, say, someone that's been faced discrimination or someone that's faced racism. Another person that was a victim of domestic violence. Somebody that's been sexually abused or sex trafficked or uh, somebody that's been homeless or somebody that's faced some sort of debilitating illness, whatever it might be, I know that that generic formula and even
0: not and even not so harsh, even not so harsh a situation. But somebody, you know, you know, because often, often, you know, depressions and and mental illness doesn't happen from such such harsh situations. It they happen from more subtle, almost acceptable life, acceptable situations. You know, like parents divorcing or. Uh, being an outcast at school, or you know, something more subtle than than you know these harsh dynamics that that you have referred to. Um, um, I, I was curious earlier when you were talking about you know obviously we were talking about following the breadcrumbs and you know when in jail and and seeing those lights of hope. Do you think that? Um, so there are two questions in this. Do you think that? When you're innocent, you know, it's like there's that um there's almost those those uh tricks where um if you be- if if you think about something that's true and, and you push your arm down, your hand you you you've got more strength. But if you think about something that's not true and someone pushes your hand down, you don't have as much strength. I don't know if you know that um trick.
1: No, I have I'm not familiar with it, but I understand what you're saying and it makes sense to me.
0: Yeah. Do you think do you think that that's, that strength um applies to to people in prison? The people that are innocent have more strength to to make it through and the ones that are guilty and have committed, you know, serious crimes? don't have that strength like is there something there in in that
1: yeah there there, yes i I would say that there is definitely but the other dynamic in play that's true at the same time is that i spoke to prisoners that were guilty and they said to me look i i did what i did i got caught you know this is my punishment so i'm not going to cry about it i'm just going to make the best of it that i can and try to go home as quickly as i can so they were able to get to mm-hmm. this area of resignation of of acceptance and i could whereas i could never get there because i knew that i was innocent and that i did not belong there and i you know i didn't have any idea of how long everything was going to last for so in that aspect of mm-hmm. it the experience of doing time for someone who's innocent is a much different dynamic than the doing time for something that you're guilty of.
0: Or what, what, what I question is because so, so inspirational interviews and really what, what my drive is right is about connecting people with truth through the stories of people who are connecting with their truth. And what i think with what what we're discussing right now is is it not that it's all about truth so while someone did something wrong and they were and they pleaded guilty or they they admitted to their guilt it's there's truth in that so there's strength in their journey then because they they say they put their hands up and they say i was wrong or maybe they don't admit it yet in you know in that I'm, i was wrong i'm sorry but they do say i was wrong so there's truth in that. So that gives a certain strength because human beings do mess up in life, right? And whether it's a, yeah, a crime from killing someone or a crime from stealing something, human beings are human. And thankfully, not everyone, most people don't perform such terrible things in life. But it's when you say, I was wrong, I did wrong. It gives a certain strength then to those people, like you were saying with this guy. Look, I, I was wrong, and you know, I'm, they, there's an acceptance because they own their truth in it. And the same with you; you had your truth to get through it, or your strength to get through it, because you knew your truth, even though you were called guilty. It wasn't your truth, and so it's the it's the the conviction of truth that gets people through. You know, such yeah, such crazy times of their life.
1: I would agree with that. And I would also add that for people that are doing time that are guilty, I mean, their breadcrumbs of hope is that they're, you know, they're looking, they're hoping to get paroled. When their first their first parole board appearance, they're looking, they're hoping to make it. So they're doing things, mm-hmm. you know, this is the people that are committed to, you know, trying to get out or, Rehabilitate themselves. They're they're doing things that make it in their mind that will that will increase the chances that they will that they'll be paroled the first time that they make their mm. appearance at the parole board rather than being told no. So that's their breadcrumbs yeah. of uh, of of truth, and yeah. maybe, maybe along the way their accomplishments. I mean, as they complete various uh, vocational trades or therapeutic programs, and you know, and as they Maneuver yeah. their way out out of trouble. I mean, that's for people that go that route. Not not everybody in prison does that either. You know, there there are some people that just, in my opinion, they waste their time. They don't bother going to school. They don't learn vocational trades. They just, uh, you know, they work jobs like just you know, be being. If you want to waste your time, if you want to work in the laundry, if you want to be a janitor and just sweep and mop the floor, if you want to just go to recreation all day rather than go someplace to learn. If you don't want to take some rehabilitation, some program that claims to be rehabilitative, that addresses the crime that you're there, if you don't want to bother to take that, because you know, the parole board is going to want to see that you did, you took some kind of program that addresses the root cause of why you're there. Uh, you know, you can go that route. There's people that do that and that you know that that get into trouble all the time, and that are you know in, in gangs or in violence. If you want to go the negative route, there's more than a few examples of that. But you know there's a good there's a good segment mm-hmm. of the prison population that, that that doesn't do that. That they, you know, are following the breadcrumbs of of truth and they do uh, truth and they do have of of hope and they are following their truth. And some people are looking forward to difference-making, crime-free lives once they're released. And I've seen people do that, Mm -hmm. you know, where once they're released, they're working uh, in as drug counselors, helping with we're working with people that have drug addiction, or they're working to divert at risk youth from ending up in prison, or they're working as teachers, or they're working Mm -hmm. in prisoner reentry. And some people work with homeless populations. So and some people don't engage in a difference making life per se, but they're just determined that they're never going back. They, they want to re- retain their freedom and live a normal life in a normal environment and, you know, sp- spend some time with their with their family. So I've seen a lot of people that mm-hmm. way, just like I've seen more than my share of people while I was incarcerated for 16 years. I've seen more than my share of people end up going back to prison as well.
0: Yeah. So tell me, um, I know you said earlier that, you know, you thought that you'd one day want to become a cop, um, you know, before you were um, convicted. Um, What do you think, like, I'm just curious, you know, what do you think you would have ended up doing had you not gone to jail?
1: I think I would have become a lawyer because my thought of what I wanted to be when I grew up before I was a teenager was to be a cop. But then... As a teenager, mm. that changed. I decided that I wanted to be a lawyer because, as I mentioned, my mother had a personal injury attorney. So mm. I think that had I not gotten to prison, that I would have become an attorney and I probably would have done personal mm. injury law.
0: Personal injury law, yeah. So what is your idea about... You know, you said earlier about the stages, right? And one of the things you said was, you know, once you get through, then it's good to, you know, put an arm back and help the other person who's in the same situation that you were in. Um, what do you think about the idea of, you know, you carry on doing what you're doing now, which is, um, you know, standing up for the rights of people who are wrongly convicted and helping those people be freed of that situation. Um do you think if you stay doing that, it's going to keep you in this story? Or, or do you see yourself doing this for a certain period of time and then branching into personal injury law maybe later? Or is this now something you feel that you're committed to for the rest of your life?
1: Definitely, it's something that I'm committed to for the rest of my life. This is my calling. This is my purpose in the world. So I'm always going to be doing this in one form or another. What well, I mean by that is
0: And what do you mean by one form or another?
1: Sure. What I mean is that right now I'm doing it from the nonprofit sector, or what like in UK might be referred to as uh, NGOs. I'm doing it that way. Mm. But at some point, I might decide to make the jump to politics, and so I do it from I go from private sector to public sector. Maybe I might run for office and work to free people. You know, from the, and, and, and do policy changes from that position rather than from the nonprofit. So I can go from trying to persuade people to do the right thing to actually having my hands mm-hmm. on a few of the levers of power and uh, to be able to do things myself.
0: Yeah. And how do you think it affects you s- staying psychologically in the story of your past or? Or does it actually free you from the story of your past?
1: It's part of my identity. I mean, I, I, I consider that my, I think of myself as an advocate, as an attorney. And my motivation, I mean, the same that someone else would be. I have a body of work that I would put up against anybody's and I hold myself to that same standard. It's just that my motivation is different mm-hmm. from theirs. I mean, my motivation is that I was wrongfully convicted, but and that's what fuels me. That's motivates me. But I'm much more than just an exoneree. I, I'm an attorney, and I'm an I'm an advocate. And so I look at myself that mm-hmm. way, and so it does allow me to continue to. If you understand who you are, you can walk. You can live in that way, and. I have a sense of inner peace that way because I'm fulfilling my life purpose. If I was to stop doing this, mm. I know that it would feel empty to me because on the rare times that I have gone on vacation, by the time I'm in day five, you know, or in day seven, I just, I start to feel empty and, and I feel like there's no real meaning in what I'm doing. And then I'm thinking about all the important things that I have to do that are consistent with the, that are related in one way or another to the mission that I'm, that I'm Mm -hmm. doing. So, yeah. So, I mean, I like the idea. I think
0: think that that's really, um, I think it's really beautiful because it's, you know, hearing what you just said now, it's also so much about, um, accepting, you know, your life in its entirety and owning it. And by doing, it's like you said, you know, when you go on holiday, you feel like you want to get back hands-on, you want to get doing the things that you want to be who you are. And in a way, like people use this sort of idea of holiday of escaping who they are or escaping their life, but actually you've, you're, you're, you're living it in its entirety. Now you're owning it. Um, which is beautiful because it's, it's just, it is a full acceptance. And obviously I do think about the cops and the the guys that convicted you wrongly that you are still angry with, which I can totally understand, but obviously, you know, you don't want that part to ever hold you back, but I guess in a way it also fuels you still on your journey, you know, that there is still that emotional energy there that, that you hold, you know?
1: Right. But I want to share that, for the most part, I want to say ninety-nine, really close to a hundred percent of the time. I'm not. I'm not thinking about them though. I'm not bringing them into my mm-hmm. mind. I just kind of went there because you asked me the question. Well, you know, what would I want to see happen to them? So when that happens, yeah, it comes to the front of my mind. But other than that, that's not. I'm not thinking about them anymore. I'm. I'm just. I'm just thinking about. Mm-hmm. I'm just thinking about, you know, the world and what the world needs from me and. You know why am I here in the world and my carrying out, you know my 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 purpose. That's really what I'm. Yeah. That's really, and I'm thinking about you know the the people that need my help and uh, you know, and the preventative work that I'm doing. That's really what I'm. That's what I'm thinking about. Mm-hmm. I, if I was to stop and think about them all yeah. the time, then I would be angry. Then what I said not being angry wouldn't be true anymore. Then, and that would that would be back to. You know, basically losing the rest of my life and I'm not, I'm not going to do that.
0: Yeah. So tell me, what do you think? um, So you were always going to be a lawyer, right? You are, you, you said that now earlier, again, you confirmed that maybe it would have been personal injury law. But you, right, you, or maybe you, even you criminal law, but doing, a lawyer.
1: yeah, maybe even criminal law, but doing trials, not like trying to free wrongfully convicted people. Because I think that even had yeah. I been, even had I been found not guilty, maybe I would have, you know, I maybe I probably would have done if I had still been arrested. So that was my answer if I hadn't been arrested. But if I had been arrested, but the trial ended differently, the trial ended like I was found not guilty. I think I would have done criminal law, but it would have just been to defend people falsely accused, like at a trial, it wouldn't be, mm-hmm. I wouldn't, I still might, even then I still might not have even known that the whole world of wrongful conviction mm-hmm. existed.
0: So my question in that is, what do you think being in jail, what's what strength did going to jail give you that otherwise you wouldn't have had now, other than, right, ex- forget about the experience now of how, why you went because it was wrongly convicted and the whole DNA, but what, what life skills or real intricate strengths did being in jail give you to fulfill you doing the best job ever now, had you not gone to jail? Cause you ultimately would have always become a lawyer, right? So what did it give you that you otherwise wouldn't have?
1: I think energy and drive and just the idea of, you know, set set a goal and just don't give up. I think that those are those are clear cut things. But then I feel like I learned so much while I was in prison. Just I mean, honestly, not that I say this very often, but I really learned more reading three or four nonfiction books a week from 1998 to 2006. I learned far more that way than what I did going to grad school, getting a law, uh, getting getting a master's degree in criminal justice, or going to law school and uh, becoming an attorney. I learned more the one way than I did the other. So I think that that's a clear-cut uh, takeaway. Uh, while I was in prison, I took a, a course on how adults learn in order to then work as a teacher's aide. So the principles of that, of how adults learn... I use that in my own life now. When I'm trying to learn something for me, I learned to type while I was in prison. This we're in the information age. Everything's based around the computer. If you're able to type, Mm -hmm. you can. That's much easier than looking down at the keyboard or you know doing the Fred Flintstone one button at one finger at a time. I can just put my hands in the home (laughs) row key and just start going i don't have to look i I even know most of the time if i've made a mistake so those are all those are all things that i got from being in prison and the idea of short-term sacrifice for long-term gain is something that i got from prison Mm.
0: so do you um within yourself do you do you recognize gratitude for that?
1: Yes, I do. I do, but I reckon yeah, but I reconcile all of that as that's what I sought after. That that that's what I found. It wasn't that the prison offered that to me. It's that I decided to get that out of it. I mean, and there's there's a big difference mm. in that. Mm.
0: Yeah, interesting.
1: And I think it's important in whatever mm-hmm. challenge or life circumstance you find yourself in trying to use your time productively and not let it just have such a dominating effect on your on your life to the point that it shuts other things down. Mm. Don't compound your loss. Don't throw loss on top of loss on mm-hmm. top of loss. Yeah.
0: It's beautiful you you um, you should definitely I don't know if you have all you know but you should definitely it's you know it's just such your story is just such a beautiful uh, m- not metaphor but it's just a beautiful mirror you know to people who are within are in a jail in their own heats you know it's just it's such a nice. Such a beautiful story, you know, to also not just help people um, who are wrongly convicted, but help people who who are in the jails of their own mind, you know?
1: Absolutely, sure. Absolutely. And, you know, I want to mention as well that on the advocacy side, you know, I have I have used the public platform I I have to also bring attention to other non-innocence issues, you know, like prison reform, college education for prisoners, solitary confinement, um, compassionate release, elderly people in prison, uh, reform the parole process. So I have spoken about those issues. And so in that way, I like to think that I've, you know, done something for the prisoners who are there rightfully as well. You know, because in, in, uh, yeah. there were a lot of disturbing things that I saw and experienced while I was there that are not related to innocence but that, you know, I think are just totally inconsistent with, you know, a, a civilized society having, having a just justice system or prison system.
0: Mm. Wow. So what are your, other than work, what is your hope going forward what uh, uh, or or can you separate the two
1: it's really hard to separate the two I would say my hopes would be that I want to hope to continue to I want to make my public profile much bigger than than what it is I you know would like to be able to break into the motivational speaking field uh, I have done some presentations uh, internationally, like I did a week long tour in Argentina and, Ar- and Armenia, and one time I went to Canada. But I would like to be on the international speaking circuit more and be able to meet with some of the elected officials in other countries, like I did in those countries that I mentioned. I would like to have my book published. I'd love to have a movie out there. I would like to. Able to attract the type of support for by nonprofit organization that would allow me to have a chapter of the organization in each state in the U.S. and ultimately in each country, because I really see this as a worldwide problem, not not an American problem. And I think that countries where we don't hear about wrongful conviction is because very few people are being exonerated. Nobody is doing this type of work, so. I do see it as a worldwide mm. issue, so those are those are my hopes. But you know that that would all be, you know, as public support allows allows that to happen. And you know, I I hope that things could improve politically as well. I mean, I would like to maybe six or seven or eight years down the line. I really would like to make the jump to politics, but it would be it would have to mm. be that things were much less divisive. I mean, I would be doing that really to be a servant of the people and to advance the cause. I don't want half of the people hating me because I have, you know, I mean, you to get elected. You really have to be, you know, if you have to run on a party label, but I don't want the people in the other party all to hate me because this is one of the, I don't care about any of that. I don't care about, you know, I'm not a partisan. I could care less which party is, is in, is in power. You know, Mm. it's just a, means to an end, but, and I wouldn't want to do it when half the people are going to hate me because I'm on a different party label than the other. I'm really just an independent and, you know, I I believe in voting conscience and and not dictates of other people. And that Mm. really is not what, where the U.S. is at politically now. And it's such a polarized country and we've almost lost our freedom of speech because you're free to speak, but if people don't like your opinion, there's no more debates anymore or, you know, discussing merits of issues back and forth. And then once we're done, we're done. The conversation's finished, but people personalize everything now. and mm. there's like a type of thought police. And, you know, if you have this opinion or that opinion, people hate you and they come to view that how they see something is the only morally legitimate way of viewing it and everything else has to have some Terrible motivation and label and, you know, racist and xenophobic mm-hmm. and this and whatever other terrible thing they want, you know, like as if they have some sort of uh, their line of is the only one or they have some kind of monopoly on on truth or the only legitimate viewpoint. So I kind of hate who we're at, you know, in, in, as a country in, in, in terms of that. And so maybe that might be the only thing that prevents me from doing that aspect of it, because if I don't see things change, I mean, then maybe. And maybe I wouldn't do it because you know I'm. I I, I like feeling warmth. I like feeling empathy. I, I I like to be liked. I like to be loved. And I'm not willing to sacrifice that, you know, in order to do this mm-hmm. last step if it's going to cost me that, you know. My loyalty is to. Well,
0: it's nice you
1: how know, you. It- I was going to say my loyalty is to my conviction and what I think is right and, and, and wrong and if in the process of that i lose people or uh, then i'll just take that i'll take that hit that's just the price that i pay for staying true to mm. my convictions mm. but if it's not that if it's just the other way that i'm expressing to you that the other way i'm not i'm not willing to do that so i guess we'll see what happens
0: yeah that's that's beautiful that's uh i think that that should you know that's the essence, certainly also of my agenda on this journey in life is to, you know, stand by my convictions and, you know, in what I do as a, as a show host and an interviewer and, and also a mom. And, you know, it's about owning, owning my truth and, you know, you you can lose things in within the statement of owning your own truth, but not when you're stepping out of your truth. You know, then it's not worth it. And I think it's very beautiful what you said. Um, and based on what you said, I don't think you should get into, <laughs> into politics. I think you should go along the motivational speaking path. I think that you'll win millions of more people that way, you know, because it's so much more true to you, you know, is to, from what I'm feeling, you know, from what I'm hearing Um, politics, just, I don't know. I, I think politics will always separate and divide and, you know, hearing what you're saying of just wanting to stay true to your heart and, and, and looking for the amiable and looking for the love. And, you know, I think the motivational speaking side really resonates a lot more with your, you know, your energy from what I'm hearing Um, we're going to, we're going to lead towards, uh, rounding off and you can send me all your contact details, you know, so I can put that in the show notes. So anyone listening can, can reach out to you. Um, but, um, you know, two questions, actually. The one is because of the position that you're in and the, in the path now you've chosen, do you... Do you send, it's just, I'm just curious. Do you send letters to, to all the prisoners saying, look, this is who I am. This is what happened to me. If you're right, please reach out to me. Like, do you do something like that?
1: No, they, they write me. I don't, I don't look for them. They look, they look for me. So whenever I do, whenever <laughs> okay. I, whenever I do, whenever I do uh, media, traditional media, new media like this, or, you know, I'm in the news. You know, it was, I'm, I've become kind of like a quasi-public figure. You know, I, I, I you mm-hmm. know, I, I do a lot of traditional media and I do regularly meet with elected officials uh, in New York and also some in Pennsylvania and California. So, <clears throat> and I share my advocacy work and, you know, through social media. And so friends, family, and a- a- advocates of people who allege that they're wrongfully imprisoned, they're aware of me and they, mm-hmm. you know, they send a, to send those tips to the prisoners. Hey, you should try to get in touch with Jeff. And, you know, and but besides that, you know, um, I am well followed in the prison law library. I've become kind of a legend in the prison law library uh, and the prison system in general. I mean, I'm kind of like a legend, but, you know, it it's a double edged sword, Jen, because, yeah. you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people and you know, not just in New York, but around the country, even though the foundation website says that we're not, unless it's a DNA case, we're not able to take cases in the other states. We are only able to really take non-DNA cases in New York because it's really expensive to do an out-of-state non-DNA investigation. So even with having that, Mm. you know, we, we have this, uh, out-of-state, file cabinet full of letters that have never been opened. They're all in alphabetical order from all across the country. Even in their desperation, everyone is writing me anyway. You know, all having the thought, well, what happened to them is so extraordinary that that would knock our socks off and we're going to wind up breaking our own rule. So there's them. And at one time we had a 600 case backlog of just raw cases that we just are waiting for us to Analyze it and just give it a thumbs up or thumbs down. That we're going to work on it or not. Now we're down to 200, but you know there's 200 cases raw, and then you know we have 10 cases we're working on, but there's another seven that are approved that we're that we don't have the capacity to work on. So you know, unfortunately, it's it's hard to be the center of everybody's or a lot of people's hope, and knowing that you know that's not what my ability is i don't have the resources necessary to try to screen through everything and 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 work on everyone's case that deserves you know to have it and that weighs on me that that weighs mm-hmm. on me a lot that, that, that it's a very it's a very difficult position to be to be in and i think that people have as Many great things as I've gotten done. And we talked about them getting eleven people home, passing the eight laws. At the same time, you know, um, I do. I you know I I do have limitations, and people think if they can just get in touch with me, then by this time next week they're going to be home. They're, everything's going to be over, or that guy, you know, or that I you know I have. I I have the governor on speed dial or I can, I I don't, okay. I'm just a one person that has a little bit of influence and, you know, and I can get them Mm -hmm. to do what I want about 1% of the time and that's it. But people look at me in a different way. That's not realistic with what my abilities or resources are. I'm very, you know, I'm limited and you know, that Mm -hmm. part of it is very, That part of it's hard. And every now and then somebody is exonerated, someone is released. And when I eventually see them, because everybody in this field eventually bumps into everybody. And, you know, and there is like an annual gathering called the Innocence Network Conference that when there's not a pandemic, it's a gathering once a year that happens over three days. And a who's who in the field goes to this conference every year. And many exonerees go as well. And so every now and then yeah. uh, people are exonerated. And when I bump into them, one of the ways that I mentioned to you, they say to me, yeah, I wrote you, but you guys never wrote me back, you know? And I I, I feel this big when that happens, but I try to explain, I, I yeah. you know, I'm sure you did, but your letter was buried amongst hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of letters that everyone else is. And, We're working with very limited resources. You know, uh, the Innocence Project has a $13, $14 million budget and they have a backlog. They have a waiting list. We're working with even less resources this way. And so, uh, Mm. you know. uh,
0: So maybe what's nice for, you know, because, sorry, it broke up there, but what I was saying is, you know, um, because I think what a really big theme is also in your life story is certainly and 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 not just a theme, but I mean it's your um, your part of your signature you know is is certainly that ability to follow the breadcrumbs and to see the light of hope and I think that that's really um poignant to to your journey so um, and that's what got you through, you know, all these difficult times. And you had the muscle to to continue to do that until the end. Um, and, you know, maybe when these guys do write to you is to, you know, just have a little breadcrumb that you can throw back to them, not to say I've read your letter yet, but just to say I've received it. And, you know, in a way almost to, to some summarize your story in, in what we've said, you know, in the sense of how you manage to cope to, to get out yourself, but you know, you, you, you can't help everyone, but at least you can relay the message to them that if they keep persisting and if they keep following the breadcrumbs, they will get out. If it's not through you, it will happen so that you at least throw them back a breadcrumb if anything, you know what I mean?
1: Sure. Yeah. That makes sense. Mm-hmm.
0: So what, um, what I was, I'm going to end off on this question is, you know, most people don't go to jail, thankfully, and, um, most of the people listening to this aren't in jail and haven't been to jail. But, um, the one metaphor I have used is the jail of one's own mind. Um, what advice having been someone who has physically been, you know, locked up, um, what advice would you give to people who are in the jail within their own minds of life, you know, to, to just give them a shimmer of hope?
1: I would say sometimes we, sometimes we think that there's no way out of something. We think that we're in an impossible position, but we're actually just in a very difficult position, not an impossible position so i think that we make things worse sometimes and sometimes there is a way out so we need to look for that we need to try many different ideas we can't keep repeating the same tactics you have to try very your tactics we need to study how other people in that position that we were in how did other people make 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 it out you know so i, I mean that was part of what i did and uh, I would say also that. Just thinking how I can summarize this. You, know, you, When we're physically free, even if we're not free in our mind, you can still you can still just walk. Away. Sometimes you can just if you don't like your life, you can still walk away from it. You don't have to continue in this, you know. Dead end job or this this uh, this uh, life position that you 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 actually can try to make your life differently. You 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 can, and some people going extreme have some people have just disappeared and then just start a new life someplace else. I mean that's extreme. I'm not advocating for that necessarily, but for some people that's uh, that's work. We're not that that that's work. We don't have to be tied in as much as we as we think if you're struggling with some you know this big payment for this house that you really can't afford you don't have to keep on slaving and working 50 60 hours a week just to barely get by just to keep that going there's ways to there's ways to get out of that there might be consequences there might be a price to be paid but sometimes just to have peace of mind it's it's worth it to take those consequences on. I mean, I, I worked at a dead end job for six months. You know, I, I hated getting up and going to work. And and uh, because it was a dead end job, I hated what I was doing. And I was miserable. But I'd made the decision, look, I'm, I'm not mm-hmm. doing this anymore. I'm just I'm going to quit that part of it. I'm just going to take the hit financially. And I'm going to go back to school. And I'm going to come back out and see what the job market is like with a master's degree and hopefully I can find something better than this and and I did and that that led to that led to something uh better um, so many times we put limits on ourselves I mean I I put a limit on myself I when I was released at 32 I thought that I was too old to go back to college I that was something I wanted to do before I thought I was too old that that ship sailed but it, it, it didn't but I had an intervention though there was a a dean of a college that reached out to me that had lined up a scholarship for me. So I realized that it was not too late and I made good on that and I maximized that opportunity and I sprang board from that. I got the master's and the doctorate degree, I mean, excuse me, the law degree. So I think that sometimes we limit, oh, I'm too old for this or I should have did this or that when I'm younger. Yeah, but if you're, not, if you're not 95 years old, okay, if you still got your health, you know, if you're not bedridden, it isn't too late. It's not, it's not, it's not, I wouldn't care if you're 70. I mean, you know, just, mm. <laughs> it's better. I believe in the idea that it's better late than never. But I think that we we limit mm. ourselves sometimes in that. So limiting beliefs sometimes can, uh, you know, really can um, keep the cycle going. So that would, that would, so I would consider that and I would consider people to, Think outside the box, and just because something's never been done before, doesn't mean you can't be the first one. Somebody did it first the first time, right? So, our thinking—I think that our—I think that our thinking, you know, uh, is 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 a factor, and being willing to take steps.
0: Mm. Nice, Jeffrey. Very cool nice to chat to you.
1: Thank you. I, I enjoyed it as I enjoyed it as well. And I, you know, hope that people get something out of this interview beyond just hearing an inspirational story that is instead they can latch on to some of these truths, some of these ways of thinking that I've outlined and they can take it and apply it to their own life or take it and modify it, adapt it to whatever life's circumstance that they're in and then move, 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 ahead, try to get to a, a better tomorrow. And that would mean the world to me. And, you know, a short message, even if someone has a success story on whatever level, you know, that would really be so heartwarming for me. That would, you know, make everything, you know, that in a way that would make everything worth it in a way to me. So yeah. hope to hear from people that way. I mean, people can email me through my website, I know you're going to put the links up, but just verbally, uh, www.deskovic.org, there's an email form that people could email me. I'm a, I am have a public figure page on Facebook. I'm on Instagram and LinkedIn, so I do check my messages there, and those would all be ways that people could send a short uh, message to me because often the the trail of living a uh, meaningful life, uh, an advocate's trail or doing something trailblazing or difficult. The road is often long, hard, and lonely. And so messages of inspiration or appreciation or sharing some good, hey, I heard you when I did this, I did that. That's that's all additional fuel for me to keep going in my life journey and whatever particulars or specifics that that in, entails. So all those things strengthen me for the cause. So Really, in many ways, I, I mean, it's not really about me because I'm home, I'm free. And I don't think I'll ever be in that position. It's about the other people I metaphorically left behind. But at the same time, in a type of paradox, in a way, it's as much about me and for me as it is about other people. Because you know, mm-hmm. I do get some non-tangible but very important things out of it. Yeah. I want to just share my heart and my person with the world, I guess, in the end. This is who Jeff Deskovic is. Yeah,
0: well you're you're doing that. And uh I'm very grateful that you reached out to us at inspirational interviews. And yeah, it's just beautiful conversation. And um yeah, thank you for you know, for being bold to go out there and share your story because it does change. People's lives, stories change lives and it's um, it's a privilege for me to to hear your story. so thank you so much.
1: You're definitely welcome and thank you for sharing your platform with me uh, this morning.
0: So guys, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. Share the show with all your family and friends as I always say, sharing is caring. Go to the website inspirationalinterviews.com and also join the club, please. There you'll have access to really super cool features and also, yeah, great guest content and you'll be a part of our live interviews. Find us on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook. Thanks for listening, guys, and uh, see you on the flip side.